Good morning. It's a very uh, crisp, bright uh, winter morning here today, and we're doing, we have a one-day session in Nuzendo, and there's, there's about 20 of us or a little more in the Zendo, and there's about almost 40 of you out there. Uh, and so welcome everyone. Today, at the end of the day, we are going to observe Buddha's Parinirvana. It's, we have a Parinirvana ceremony, and uh, I'm going to speak about that uh, this morning. and. Uh, maybe leave leave time so we can explore what uh, are the resonances with us. Um, how does this um, ceremony and our whole investigation and uh, uh, reflection on Paranirvana uh, support our practice? Uh, so. Nirvana, as you know, uh, can be seen through different lenses and from different angles. Uh, in the early Buddhist tradition, uh, and that is carried through in the Theravada tradition that exists now in South and Southeast Asia, Nirvana means basically, Nirvana, the root of it, suggests the act of blowing out, of damping down the fires. Uh, and this is extended to our inner fires, the fires of attachment, the fires of our desires, the fires of our passions. And uh, Nirvana is a kind of, it's seen in that tradition as a categorical uh, transformation that takes place internally in each uh, person, potentially, uh, where the fires of these uh, afflictive emotions, which also even include the pleasant emotions, uh, are extinguished. Uh, now, of course, we have different we have different manifestations of that, particularly different manifestations in our present day and in our Zen tradition. Um, I'm very taken with exchange that uh, I found in uh, the book of Sojin Roshis that we're uh, in the process of having published, where he asks uh, Suzuki Roshi, what is Nirvana? And Suzuki Roshi's response is, seeing one thing through to the end. That, that's something that I think uh, we can more reasonably apply in our lives to, to find how are we consistent? How are we following a thread uh, in our lives, finding that direction and following it, uh, rather than setting the goal setting the goal of actually uh, blowing out or extinguishing uh, all of our passions and desires. It seems a higher bar. Uh, and 
Yet that was what was said in the early in the early tradition. So um, Paranirvana is what happens at death for a being, a Buddha or an enlightened disciple, an arhat, uh, when that person dies, uh, they're said to enter parinirvana. And parinirvana is uh, what that suggests for a person who has, who has realized nirvana is that they leave the wheel of birth and death. Uh, they leave, uh, they're no longer uh, ensnared in karma and rebirth and rebirth in samsara. Uh, so uh, it's a, a sort of a conclusive extinction. Uh, and that's what, that's the power nirvana. Uh, suggests certainly in early tradition. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of other perspectives on it, but um, so these, the ceremony that we're doing today is uh, generally observed in, in East Asia, uh, in China, Japan, and some of the other uh, some of the other countries that observe Tibet, that observe the, basically the Mahayana school of Buddhism. And it takes place generally at the middle of February. In the South and Southeast Asian tradition, Buddhist traditions, um, all of the major milestones uh, in Buddha's life are observed on a single occasion, which is called Vesaka. Um, and that usually takes place in April or May. And it's kind of the aggregation of Buddha's birthday, Buddha's enlightenment, and Buddha's death. So uh, it's three for one. <laughs> if you're the Zendo manager, it's a very economical system. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it easy. You only have to perform, perform. You only have to prepare one ceremony. So we have various lenses for looking at the Dharma, uh, and it, it varies across traditions and across time. Uh, one thing that I want to do in the in today is just uh, relate to you some of the. Uh, the narrative from the early Buddhist tradition about Buddhist Parinirvana. But I wanted to skip forward a bit. And uh, since we are uh, somehow rightfully accused of being uh, the cult of A.A. Dogen, uh, I wanted to, to give you uh, some of the commentary that Dogen made on the Paranirvana. And if you look at Dogen's Ehe Koroku, Dogen's extensive record, uh, 
what you find as you go through that book is that uh, he gave a short talk on Paranirvana almost every year as, as it came up. I mean, in, in that, that book is actually a wonderful record of uh, kind of all the occasional uh, obs observances in, in Buddhist life and in, in the monastic schedule. So um, a couple of interesting things. Uh, let me read you something quite beautiful and challenging. Uh, this is from uh, uh, the Dharma Discourse uh, number 225 uh, in the Ehe The twin Sala trees, which are the trees in which Buddha died, uh, did not receive the power of the spirit of spring. After a snowfall, how can we know the midnight frost? Buddha held up and turned the empty sky and laid himself down in the world. The Tathagata emitted light twice from the curled hair on his forehead. Although it is the case that he was lying down, who would say that when he lost his physical life, he would not also have liked dying while sitting or standing? The eating bowls of seven Buddhas are bottomless, but for sentient beings, this disaster was awful. If you say Shakyamuni is extinguished, you are not his disciple. If you say he is not extinguished, your words do not hit the mark. Having reached this day, how do you respond? Do you want to see the Tathagata's life fade? Offer incense, make prostrations, and return to the meditational hall. We don't have to worry about that. We're actually already doing that. Uh, we are, even though the historical Buddha died 2,500 years in this day, uh, we are looking we are not looking at, we are inhabiting the life vein of the Tathagata Buddha. Just, right, so each one of us is a corpuscle that's running through this vein. And let me read you a little for, from uh, one of the other uh, discourses. This is, uh, that one was, by the way, that one was, in 1247, uh, and this one is from 1251, uh, Dharma Discourse 418. Um, and it's, it's some of the, the same points. Today, the prime teacher of this Saha world, the Saha world is the world that we inhabit. Saha means, uh, uh, to be endured. This is how we wake up in this world is by enduring things. You may have noticed that's kind of inescapable. Uh, and in other worlds, in other Buddha fields, uh, they have uh, 
And they have easier ways of, of waking up. You know, it's like they, you know, they drink the, the nectar, uh, the nectar rain, that's raining down from the heavens and they wake up or they eat a delicious fruit or they wake up or they hear a, you know, a transformative sound and they wake up. No, for us, we have to endure what's really hard. And we're all doing that. We're all enduring that in our, in our own particular way, but also in ways that are shared. So that's the Saha world. That's been given to us as the means for waking up. Um, so today, the prime teacher of the Saha world, the great master Tathagata Shakyamuni, entered Nirvana in the town of Kusanagara. Since then, 2,200 years have passed. Although this is so, our Buddha once said, if you say I perish, you are not disciples belonging to my clan. If you say I do not perish, you are also not disciples in my clan. If you say I both perish and do not perish, you are all not disciples in my clan. Okay, we're really stuck here, right? Uh, Already, we are not disciples in, in, of his clan. So finally, what are we called? Aren't we all practicing together alongside Shakyamuni Buddha? If we are practicing alongside him, then whom are we practicing under? Tell me, Great Assembly, I inquire, and we'll see what you say if you cannot speak. For you say, for if you cannot speak for your sake, I will talk. In this, this is something Dogen uh, frequently says, and evidently there was uh, vast silence after he would he would ask this question, and nobody would dare to speak. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't thundering silence; it was just kind of dumb silence. <laughs> so he says, after a pause, Dogen said, we meet and practice under Shakyamuni Buddha. If we meet and practice under Shakyamuni, we are Shakyamuni Buddha's disciples and among his kinfolk. Those who have already become his disciples and kin include commoners and sages. Those who have committed the, even those who have committed the five deadly crimes and heavenly beings and humans in immeasurable, boundless, uncountable, unthinkable numbers. Already having reached all of them, how is the teaching established? All sentient beings having Buddha nature, the world honored one opens and shows this to transform both commoner and sage. Uh, This is all in the realm of the commoner and sage. So what comes to mind, uh, uh, I really like this sentence, if we are practicing along, aren't we, Dogen asks, aren't we all practicing alongside Shakyamuni Buddha? If we're practicing alongside him, then whom are we practicing under? 
it seems to me that the thrust of this practice is that we are not practicing under anyone. We are practicing alongside. And the whole, even though the Buddha was loved and deeply respected uh, and treated as an enlightened one by his disciples and those who came to hear him, um, really the essence of it is that they were all practicing together. They were all practicing alongside. And when it, when it comes to, uh, in, the, in the story in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, uh, at one point, as he's near death, uh, Ananda, his attendant, asks him, uh, who will leave the Sangha when you are gone? And um, there was a distinction between seniority. So Mahakashapa was understood as the senior monk, and he's the person that convened the first council uh, a year after Buddha died. But that was seniority. The Buddha said, uh, after my departure, the Dharma will be your leader. So he wasn't creating a, um, a hierarchy. He wasn't passing the leadership directly to somebody else. He was saying, we've, you know, I've been preaching the Dharma. This is what you should uh, take as your leadership. And the other thing that I think that, that resonates with me is an expression of Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, where, uh, where he said, uh, uh, in the future, uh, the Sangha will be the Buddha. So that's, the Sangha is actually the living, act, active manifestation of the Dharma. You know, we can think the Dharma lives in a book, but it doesn't live in a book. It lives in our hearts. And in our hearts, that's what motivates us. That's how we come forth in the world. We bring forth what, what is in our heart, what's, what's been integrated there. Um, so, uh, we're all practicing, I really like to say, we're, we're not practicing under Shakyamuni Buddha, we're not practicing under this teacher or that teacher or under the abbot, you know, we're practicing alongside. And that's, you know, one of the, I think one of the effects of the Paranirvana was to, uh, was actually to remove this pivotal figure or remove this figure who was who is um so easily objectified 
and placed outside oneself to remove that so that you can reckon and understand and come to terms with how am I going to manifest as Buddha? How am I going to manifest the Dharma? So I wanted to go back and uh, see if uh, tell you a little about the his actual passing. This might be some of you might know this, and some of you might find this new. Uh, so he was about the age of. Uh, 85, I believe. Is that right? Remember? I'm sorry? 80. 80, thank you. Okay, yeah. Uh, I know it had an eight number in it someplace. Uh, and he says, when the Blessed One had entered the rainy season, there arose in him a severe illness, and, a sh and sharp and deadly pains came upon him. And the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Uh, he said, it would not be fitting if I came to my final, final passing away without addressing those who attended on me, without taking leave of the community of monks and nuns. Uh, let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain a life process and live on. So, um, I think it's, it's instructive to understand that even though the Buddha had experienced nirvana, uh, he was still subject to pain. Uh, that's a condition of life. That's a condition of life in the Saha world, right? Um, so, um, oh yeah. Uh, so he speaks to his attendant Ananda Ananda, now I am frail, old, aged, far gone in years. This is my 80th year, thank you. And my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda, is held together with much difficulty. So the, bo the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with support. And the Blessed One said, Whosoever Ananda has developed, practiced, employed, strengthened, maintained, scrutinized, and brought to perfection, the four constituents of psychic power could, if he so desired, remain throughout a world period or until the end of it. The Tathagata Ananda has done so. In other words, he's, he's brought to perfection these uh, constituent psychic powers. Therefore, the Tathagata could, if he so desired, remain through a world period or till the end of it. But the Venerable Ananda was unable to grasp the plain suggestion given by the Blessed One. Uh, so he did not beseech the Blessed One. May the Blessed One remain throughout the world period for the welfare and happiness of the multitude. And, so, and when for a second or third time, the Blessed One repeated his words, Venerable Ananda remained silent. Ananda is, Ananda is uh, frequently the, uh, the straight man in the Buddhist stories. He's, He's the guy that, that doesn't get it. And because he doesn't get it, we have the stories, right? Um, 
And when the venerable Nanda had gone away, Mara, the evil one, approached the Blessed One. He said, now, O Lord, let the Blessed One come to his final passing away. When this was said, the Blessed One spoke to Mara, saying, do not trouble yourself, evil one. Before long, the Paranirvana of the Tathagata will come about. Three months hence, the Tathagata will utterly pass away. Uh, uh, so there, uh, upon renouncing, upon the Buddha's renouncing his will to live, live on, there came a tremendous earthquake, dreadful and astonishing, and thunder rolled across the heavens. Again, the Venerable Nanda spoke to the Blessed One, saying, May the Blessed One remain, may the Happy One remain throughout the world period for the welfare of happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world. And the Blessed One answered, Enough, Ananda. Do not entreat the Tathagata, for the time is past Ananda for such an entreaty. Uh, then the Venerable Ananda said, this I have heard and learned from the Blessed One himself. When you said, whosoever has developed, practiced, employed, strengthened, and so forth, the four constituents of psychic power could, if so desired, remain through a world period. Tathagata, uh, the Tathagata Ananda has done so. Therefore, the Tathagata could, if he had so desired, remain through a world period or until the end of it. And the Buddha turns to him and says, then Ananda, the fault is yours. Like, can you imagine that? <laughs> uh, herein you have failed, inasmuch as you were unable to grasp the plain suggestion given by the Tathagata you did not entreat the Tathagata to remain. If you had done so, Ananda, the third time, he would have consented. Therefore, Ananda, the fault is yours, and you have failed. So then, Ananda, let's go to the hall of the gabled house in the great forest. And Ananda said, so be it, Lord. You can imagine the, his tone, right? <laughs> like, they're just just it's an interesting story it's an interesting thing to visualize uh, so the Buddha goes and talks to the, to the uh the bhikkhus uh and he teaches them the foundations of mindfulness the right efforts the five faculties the powers the seven factors of enlightenment and the eightfold path he does really intensive teaching for this last period uh, and then he tells them, uh, so because I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. The time of the Tathagata's Paranirvana is near. Three months hence, the Tathagata will utterly pass away. So they travel um, to Kusanagara and uh, Kunda, the metal worker, prepares a last meal for the Buddha. Uh, and uh, 
the Blessed One instructed Kunda in the Dharma and then invites him to, uh, to make a meal. Uh, and Kunda, the metal worker, after the night had passed, had choice food, hard and soft, prepared in his abode, together with the quality of Sukara Madhava, and announced to the Blessed One, it is time, O oh Lord, the meal is ready. So Sundara, this is this was the Buddha's last food, Sakara Mandava, which is uh, Madhava, which is there's some ambiguity about what it was, uh, whether it was uh, Sakara means pig or pork, and Madhava means soft or tender or delicate. Uh, so it could be the dent, the tender. Uh, meat of, from a from a pig, or what is enjoyed, what, what the pigs eat. Uh, in the latter meaning, the term has been thought to refer to a mushroom or a truffle. Uh, at any rate, uh, Blessed One comes to Punda's house and receives the food uh, and says, uh, serve me the Sukara Madhava. Don't serve it to the other, uh, the other ones who are present. Uh, serve them with the other hard and soft food. Uh, and then he says, this is an interesting story. Uh, he says to Kunda, whatever Kunda is left over, uh, of the Sukara Bandava, bury it in a pit. For I do not see in all this world uh, anyone who could eat it and entirely digest it except the Tathagata. And evidently, he didn't have such a good job. He didn't have such a, uh, a good way to digest it either. Uh, as soon as the Blessed One had eaten the meal provided by Kunda, the metal worker, a dire sickness fell on him and he suffered sharp and deadly pains. Uh, and the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Uh, and he sets off with Ananda uh, to go to the grove outside uh, Kusanagara. There's another lovely story here. Uh, Blessed One was sitting by the side of the highway uh, on a seat that was prepared for him. He said to Ananda, please bring me some water, Ananda, I am thirsty. And Ananda answered the Blessed One, but just now, Lord, a great number of carts have passed over and the shallow water has been cut through by the wheels so that it flows turbid and muddy. But the Takuta River, Lord, is quite close by and its waters are clear, pleasant and cool and translucent. It is easily approachable and delightly, delightfully placed. There you can quench your thirst. Uh -huh. And the second or third time, the Blessed One says, yeah, please bring me some water now from here. So 
Mananda does, he took the bowl and went to the stream and the shallow water, which had been cut through by the wheels so that it flowed uh, turbid and muddy, became clear and settled down, pure and pleasant as the Ananda drew near. And he took up the bowl and carried it to the Buddha and said, marvelous indeed is the power and glory of the Tathagata for this shallow water became clear and settled, pure and pleasant as I drew. Now let the blessed one drink the water. And he asks Ananda to prepare him a couch between these two, two trees. I'm weary, Ananda, and want to lie down. He lie down. Ananda went into the Vihara, the temple, and leaned against the doorpost and wept. I am still a learner and have to strive for perfection. But my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. And the Buddha asked, where are bhikkhus is Ananda? Um, then he says, tell Ananda that I want to see him. And he spoke to Ananda when he came, said, enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For what I have, for have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is, uh, is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance. Now, for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness, indeed, word, and thought, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taints. So the time is coming. Uh, the Buddhists, uh, to get to the point that I had said earlier, it may be, Ananda, that to some thought, to some, the thought will come, ended is the word of the master. We have a master no longer. But it should not, Ananda, be so considered. For that which I have proclaimed and made known as the Dhamma and the discipline, so the, the teachings and the, uh, the discipline, meaning the, the precepts, the many precepts, uh, that shall be your master when I am gone. And he tells Ananda, if desired, Ananda, the Sangha may abolish the lesser and minor rules, the lesser and minor precepts. Uh, and just as a to flash forward to the First Council, uh, the monks questioned Ananda, who had a you know photographic memory. Uh, what did he say about the precepts? There were a lot of precepts, right? Uh, 257, I think. And he said, well, you know, we can abolish the minor ones. Uh, and uh, they said, well, which were those? <laughs> and Ananda said, I forgot to ask him. <laughs> and so they decided they would keep them all. Yeah. Um,
finally came to his last words and repeats this same thing. Behold now, because I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. So that's what I want to share of the, the story of the Parinirvana. And uh, we have some time to talk. And the question is, how is this alive for you, considering uh, considering that uh, within memory of many of us, we have lost our teacher? Within our teacher's memory, he had lost his teacher. Uh, and that these teachers are alive to us, just as the Buddha was alive in the mind of his speakers. <coughs> Uh, and that, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to share. Uh, so later, and this is where, where it gets to the fact that there are multiple lenses in, of the Dharma. So in the, uh, in the later uh, Mahayana, uh, in the Mahayana Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which is very different than the, than the earlier Pali Sutra, uh, there's the notion of a true self, of a permanent self. Uh, and uh, in this text, it says something that is really challenging to us. You know, it's like, okay, how do we hold this? because it seems to go in contradiction to everything that we have previously really learned deeply. The Buddha says, Oh, bhikkhus, do not abide in the thought of the non-eternal sorrow, non-self, and the not pure, and have things in the case of those people who take the stones, wooden pieces, and gravel for the true gem of the Dharma, in every situation, constantly meditate upon the idea of the self, the idea of eternal bliss and the pure. Those desirous of attaining reality meditatively cultivate these ideas, <laughs> namely the ideas of the self, Atman, the eternal bliss and the pure will skillfully bring forth the jewel, just like the wise person. Um, and this is uh, one of the scholar, German scholar, Michael Zimmermann, uh, in his study of the Tathagata Garbha Sutra, uh, reveals that not just in the Mahaparinirvana, Nirvana, but in the Tathagata Garbha Sutra and the Lankavatara Sutra, uh, they speak affirmatively of the self. And Zimmermann observes, the existence of an eternal imperishable self, that is, Buddhahood, is definitely the point of the Tathagatagarva Sutra. Uh, the Mahaparinirvana and Lakavatara characterize the Tathagata explicitly as Atman or self. So that's a bit mind bending. Uh, 
how do we hold this? How do we hold this power nirvana? And how do we hold the fact that we're not talking about extinction in these later Mahayana sutras? We're actually talking about something that a Buddha that is eternal and eternally uh, taking care of us. And I don't raise this, I'm not making any argument. I, I find that problematic, but I like laying out these ideas for you because uh, ultimately each of us has to decide how to live. Each of us has to uh, find a way to manifest what we understand to be the Dharma. So uh, I just wanted to have, wanted, it's important to have a full picture and not um, zero in on one portion of the tradition or another. At least that's my point of view. Uh, that's just my opinion. We'll leave time. Let's let's have some questions, thoughts, reflections. Gary. Yeah, I wonder if he wasn't um, kind of encouraging a kind of practice and not necessarily condoning the idea. You know what I mean? Of, what are we talking about? I'm talking about the um, that there's an eternal self, that there's an eternal. Um, uh, yeah, that there's an internal self. The, the part that you just read, the right. last part, that maybe he wasn't necessarily saying it exists as much as it's a practice to do to... Um, so so what, Gary's, what Gary's suggesting is that maybe in, in these sutras that, we, that I cited at the end, uh, the Buddha is suggesting this as as a practice rather than as a fact. Right. Is that right? That's right? Yeah. I think not. I think I think that, you know, in these sutras they're making it's it's the Buddha speaking pretty categorically. And uh but we have to remember uh that we have to remember first of all the Pali Sutras were not written down until two or three hundred years after the Buddha's life. Uh, so already we have somebody else's voice and interpretation in there. And the Mahayana Sutras that we're talking about were written uh, probably about four, maybe 400, 500 years after that in the early part of the common era. And we have, doc, you know, we have doctrinal shifts and we have the, you know, what you have in Buddhism, there's nothing pure, even though the Tathagatakarva says there's something pure. The, the Dharma is uh, interpenetrated with, uh, with a variety of religious views that were extant in, uh, in time and place and it was different in time and place. You know, the earliest sutras that have been discovered, the earliest texts that have been discovered, uh, uh, and a, uh, an old high school friend is kind of leading this project, is Richard Solomon, uh, 
who's a professor at University of Washington, uh, they were found in Afghanistan and they're, they date from about 100 BC, 200 BC. And what you find in them is an interesting conflation of what we would take as Mahayana teachings with what we would take as Theravada teachings. So, so there was an, there was an interpenetration from very early on. Anyway, uh, yeah. That could have been tainted. Every, well, you could say everything is tainted, but that's that's my opinion. <laughs> Maybe it's your opinion too. I don't know. Uh, Mira. Well, I'd like to go back to something a lot more recent. Okay. Than uh, two thousand five hundred years ago, and um, Suzuki Roshi said. Nirvana is seeing everything to its end. No, he said seeing one thing, one thing, one okay, thing through to its end. Yeah. Beautiful. But still, what does that mean? Okay, so Mira is asking, <laughs> Suzuki Roshi said uh, uh, Nirvana, in response to Sojourn Nirvana, is seeing one thing through to the end. Um, I think, you know, what it means to me in the light of Suzuki Roshi's life and Sojin's life is the one thing that they saw through was to sustain this practice. You know, now it could be anything. You know, if you're a musician, it could be, you know, it could be the, the music that you're doing, or it could be any particular, uh, it, you know, it could be being a mother or a father. Uh, so it's not there's not a, not a definition of what that one thing is, um, but it's just like really figure out what's pivotal and central in your life and uh, follow that through. I think that was his advice to that was his advice to Sojin. I was really when I heard that it just that really kind of nailed me. So it could be talking about practice, or it could be talking about another thing that's very yeah. important to our life. Yes, it could be talking about practice. I mean, I think that the context there was practice, but I think it's, you know, it's anything that is pivotal. But I would say there's, you know, there's often, there's probably a moral, uh, a moral cast to it if you will. So uh, the one thing, the moral element of that is uh, that the one thing should be wholesome, yeah. not unwholesome. You know, it's not like be the best murderer you can, you know. Uh, it's like do what you can to make connection in the world. Yeah, Dave. Isn't, isn't so much a historical point, but just the, um, as, a, as a practice point, I think the gift of getting the, the entire ocean of the Dharma and how it changes over time is that um, my mind, our minds can get stuck so easily. So I can receive a teaching like impermanence and then I can get stuck there. 
then the tradition offers me a teaching of permanence. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's a way in which if any piece of the Dharma you lift up, there will be other places in the tradition that um, actually take that away. Right. And there's a real gift in that, I think. Yeah. So Dave is saying um, that he feels there's a gift in what we find in the Dharma that any one teaching where we potentially can get stuck, uh, we can often find it's corrective uh, in another location. And that, that corresponds to my understanding of the Dharma as medicine. That, that in fact, every teaching was given in a particular context. You know, if we look at the Pali Suttas, which is one, they're wonderful because they tell you what the setting was, who he was speaking to, something about their background. And when you realize that, uh, what he's saying to them is quite specific to that point, just as it should be in this, in this uh, discourse that we're having now. <clears throat> you know, it's not an abstract question. It's, it's like a question that you might have, or Mira has a question that she had. Uh, and the Buddha offered the, the Dhamma as medicine, which means it's, we take it in to bring us back into balance, right? Uh, and I, I often say, uh, it's medicine, it's not food. You know, you don't eat medicine as food. You know, if you take too much of it, you, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get sick. Uh, but the medicine, if you take the right amount, the right titration, it brings you into balance. So um, the couple hands in um, on, in Zoom land, uh, I see Peter. Thank you, uh, Hosan. Um, I just wanted to mention how I'm holding this, what you've said this uh, this morning um, about all these different interpretations, views, practices. Um, I'm kind of folding those into um, how we are all practicing together alongside each other uh, in, a, uh, in a sort of vast context, which we don't really understand, but I, I find it encouraging to kind of hold it as all of us together alongside well, thank you. So, you know, I was really, it wasn't until I read it over this morning that somehow that line in the Dogen, uh, in Dogen's Dharma Hall discourse leaped out at me. Uh, uh, and I think it leaped out in resonance with the understanding that that is how we practice. That's how we've been instructed to practice. That's how we have that's how we manifest in this in this in community, but there you have Dogen uh, sort of pointing to it uh, nine hundred years ago. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the um, uh, the universe of Buddhist teaching is just a just a great and varied resource. Yeah, yeah. 
Was there another hand out there? It said there were two hands raised, but I'm not seeing another hand. I'm looking there, I'm looking, the last question, and I, I see. Ah, okay, Kabir. Um, I was a bit surprised and um, was fascinating to see Jamara still hanging out even until his last day. Can you say anything about that? <laughs> Sure, Mara. So Mara is uh, the tempter. Uh, you know, he's he's a foil uh, for for the Buddha. And Mara, I believe, the root of that is death. Um, the root of that of that word. Uh, and he's always hanging around. He's he's around. He's around right now, you know, so he was there and the Buddha was always like, yeah, yeah, I hear you, you know, you're there, but I'm going to take care of this. Just give me some space, you know, and uh, uh, they never seemed to mix it up as they did, you know, right at Buddha's uh, when he was sitting uh, to become enlightened when he was really seriously challenged by Mara, but Mara, Mara appears. Uh, did you did you hear that? It was a, the question about the uh, the presence of of Mara, and uh, yeah, Mara is seems to be she's like there, in, in, at least in the back of our heads, if, you know, and sometimes in the very front. Uh, so uh, we have to, we should pay our respects. You know, it's like uh, it's a little like God and the devil talking in the book of Job. You know, uh, and uh, they're really kind of mixing it up. Uh, and the Buddha did that with Mara. So thank you very much. Enjoy the day and we're going to continue sitting.